Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. I'm Jeffrey Mason, researcher at the Charter Cities Institute. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Linda Colley. She's the Shelby M.C. Davis 1958 Professor of History at Princeton University and is a leading expert on British imperial and global history, among other topics in British history. Her latest book and our topic of conversation today, The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions, and the Making of the Modern World, documents the complex interrelationship between the rise of modern warfare and the rise of modern constitutionalism worldwide. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Linda. Thank you for coming on the show to discuss your new book, The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen. Hi. Great pleasure to be here. So this is a really interesting book. It takes a very interesting approach to the topic of constitutions and of constitutionalism generally. So my background is economics, and I always think about constitutions through this, what you might call a public choice lens, thinking about sort of the incentives and the surrounding institutional arrangements. You're a historian who's largely been focused on both domestic and global British issues, a country famous for its lack of a singular sort of written constitutional document. So how did you arrive at this project linking modern war and the sort of modern emergence of constitutions? Well, I should say that Britain did very briefly have its own equivalent to a codified constitution back in 1653 during the period. It was a republic, but then the monarchy came back and away went the constitution. I think the fact that I was a Brit coming to the United States, first of all, in 1982 to work at Yale, that made me respond to these extraordinary texts which have spread all around the world in a rather different way, because I didn't take them for granted. They were somewhat exotic to me. And as I began thinking about them, I was not really satisfied with some of the interpretations that were available. I didn't think we could just explain it by the ever onward movement of liberty, because after all, almost every country on the globe has a constitution now. Liberty is much more sparse. I was also, this may not go down well, not absolutely convinced by what many of my Americanist friends seem to assume that the United States was a kind of lonely beacon which began spreading the light across the globe. The more I researched it, the more it seemed to me that, yes, of course, the Constitution drafted in Philadelphia in 1787 is an extraordinary document. But in some ways, it was part of a wider zeitgeist in which other countries, other parts of the world were plugging. And that to understand these documents, therefore, you had to look across country, across continents. So that's what I decided to do. 
Yeah, I really enjoy this as a fresh approach and something that I really hadn't thought about in that way before, perhaps as an American. So thank you for bringing some new light to us exceptionalists. So there's sort of a central theme that you identify in the book that you observe the sort of relationship between the increase in size, scale, and intensity of war and revolution in the modern world from roughly the 1700s onwards. And at the same time, there's an overlapping trend towards the greater use of constitutions in governance, doing away with purely relying on sets of norms and precedents and this sort of thing. So talk more about sort of what that relationship, what are the mechanics of that relationship that you identify? Well, of course, there have always been wars, but wars clearly only start feeding into codified constitutions at a certain point in time. Now, why is that? Well, partly that wars on account of empire and other factors are getting much bigger, stretching across continents and oceans. And that means that for major players like France, Britain, Spain, especially in the mid-18th century, they've got to start pumping money, not just into large armies, but into ever larger navies. And navies are incredibly expensive because with armies, you know, you can always clear the jails, employ mercenaries, push everyone into the ranks etc. But working on a sailing ship of war and building those ships and maintaining them and provisioning them is hideously, hideously expensive. And therefore, and this is only one part of the explanation, more and more rulers begin to think, well, look, we've got to raise taxes. We've got to be able to attract loans. We've got to get more trained men into the armed services. So, and therefore, we've got to change the running of the state. So, there was a degree to which codified constitutions began emerging in part as a kind of contract saying, look, we want more taxes, we want more men. We want more loans. In return, we will set down how the state is being run. We will set out checks and balances and so forth. And, of course, all that's helped by another technological shift that is really gaining ground in every sense by the 18th century, the spread of printing presses, the spread of literacy. It's no use producing these kind of documents if they cannot be read or at least read out aloud by some literates to non-literates. So these technologies are bumping constitutions along. And in the 19th century, you're going to get other developments that do the same. The growth of railroads, for example, means that armies can be much bigger because the American Civil War is a great example of this. 
you can move new supplies of food and man to different directions much more quickly than if they'd had to come on foot and horseback. That in turn means much bigger armies, much higher levels of casualties. And this, of course, is one of the primary reasons why the Union Army in the American Civil War says, you know, we've got to start recruiting black troops at a much busier level. And therefore, we've got to think of giving these guys a greater share of citizenship. It's interesting how we don't, I think, traditionally think of it this way, but it's sort of transaction, essentially granting the state license to pursue the activities it wishes to pursue that it had always tried to do, but perhaps now there are these confounding economic, technological, and other factors that you point out that they finally kind of, it seems like they hit an upper bound on what they were practically capable of doing. There's a figure you give in the book that I found astonishing. I don't remember the exact number, but the sheer quantity of, I believe it was specifically just 74-gun ships of the line that the French constructed in a 10-year period is truly remarkable. But when you dig into some of these, the actual details of what it is that these states were trying to do, we all know, yes, the Seven Years' War is a global war. We kind of get it. But when you really dig into the minutiae of just how costly and expansive the armaments and all this was to make that happen, it's really fascinating. And this sort of constitutional transaction, it makes a lot of sense, I think, once that detail is revealed. Yeah. And of course, you cite that French example. And in a sense, it reinforces the connection between increasing warfare, increasing taxation, and political change. Because, of course, the French try to get it, get one without the other. The French monarchy builds up its navy furiously, which is really going to help the American revolutionaries. But it does not help the French monarchy because it's getting broke and it hasn't given political concessions to the vast majority of its people. And this is part of what causes the explosion of the French Revolution in 1789. So I want to dive into some of the different examples that you bring up in the book, and you sort of structure it throughout by talking about several sort of big thematic areas. And one that I wanted to touch on that I think was interesting and is probably underappreciated is the role of Haiti as sort of an early player in this realm of constitution making. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of Haitian experience and how they had an early role to play? Sure. In the 1790s, partly as a sort of repercussion of the French Revolution, you get explosions of dissidence on what is going to become Haiti which is France's biggest sugar and slave plantation islands. And it's a very bloody and protracted affair, which kills a lot of blacks and whites on the island. But you get this extraordinary black leader, Toussaint Louverture, who around 1800 gets this idea, well, you know, what we need to do is 
compose and publish, print Haiti's constitution. It still wasn't called Haiti at that stage. That was going to be a bit later. But, you know, we must have a written and printed constitution. And Toussaint uses the constitution really for two purposes. First, to make absolutely clear that no inhabitant of these islands anymore is a slave. Slavery is dead and gone. But Toussaint also wants to make clear that this is the case, not just for his own purposes, but to broadcast it to the French, to anybody else who has access to these printed words. And Napoleon is furious at this. But I think the fact that Toussaint does that, something which ultimately proves lethal to him because the French capture him, but it shows what constitutions can do. We tend to think that they're only there for domestic purposes, but written and printed constitutions also have a publicity and manifesto purpose, as the men of Philadelphia in 1787 knew very well. So you print this stuff and you mass produce it, often in different languages, and you send it round the world so that everybody knows that you are creating a new kind of political regime. And that's partly why these devices take off so much. It's not just about domestic rights. It's because as more and more new states and empires and regimes emerge, they want to trademark themselves, if you like. That was another thing that I found interesting, just the extent to which constitutions weren't just a domestic tool, but also a play for legitimacy on the international stage. And I think your discussion of the 1861 Tunisian constitution is an interesting example of this, about how the sort of governor there sort of has these sort of exchanges with Americans and others, and there's sort of this outward-looking effort when they're drafting this. And you call it, and I quote, a calculated reposition and defensive modernization. So this is interesting to me because a lot of these documents, they might be what you would sort of call an offensive modernization, right? Haiti says, you know, we're throwing off the French, there will be no more slavery. In the American case, right, where we are sort of throwing off the British, it was, you know, it was taxation without representation, all of these kind of issues which said, we, you know, we don't like this old order and we reject this old order and want to impose a new one. But the way you describe Tunisia is a little bit different. So can you talk about sort of that different approach to constitution making? Yeah. I take your point, yeah, the offensive manifesto in your face aspect of constitutions is, and of course, deep ideological commitments, idealism, it's all there. But the defensive element you can see, especially in regions of the world, Tunisia would be one, Hawaii would be another before the 1890s. Regions of the world that know they are under threat from the great powers. Tunisia worries with good cause about France. Hawaii's government 
and monarchy worry with good cause about Washington. So in both cases, you get constitutional schemes that cater to local imperatives and customs. But again, there is this element of alerting the world. And I think both for Tunisia and Hawaii, there's a feeling, look, if we can make a constitutional document and print it and distribute it, this underlines the fact that we are a modern, well-ordered state. We're not some kind of old-fashioned, crumbling place that people can take over. And so perhaps if we broadcast this, we adjust our image and they might just leave us alone. In neither of these cases, of course, does it work for very long, though Hawaii, I think, keeps American takeover at bay for longer than would have been possible otherwise. Where this strategy is going to work is in a much more powerful and larger polity, namely Japan, which in the 1880s is going to issue the first East Asian codified constitution, both for its own reasons and again to keep the West at bay. And this time the strategy works. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Japan because that is one of the examples I wanted to talk about. So Japan's modernization after the Meiji Restoration is sort of famous in part just for the sheer pace at which it takes place. It's sort of modeled roughly after sort of imperial Germany and within essentially 30 years, they are a industrial power. They defeat Russia in 1905 and that really says, you know, Japan is now here on the world stage and their adventures throughout Asia continue for several more decades. What I'm wondering is, as Japan kind of arrives at this, as it's at its sort of initial constitutional moment, do you think there are sort of elements of what they ended up producing that contributed to that rapid modernization? I think what happens in Japan after the Meiji Revolution, as it's called, or Restoration, is a very interesting blend of economic technological changes and legal, constitutional, and political changes. Now, the regime that is set up by the Meiji Restoration wants change, but in political terms, limited change. Initially, the Japanese constitution does not create a very big electorate, nor does it create a massive amount of rights, because the desire is that this should remain a great polity governed by a traditional emperor. But in fact, once you've got a written constitution, which can be read and can educate people, it's difficult to stop things. And the pace of political change after the Japanese constitution within Japan and not just outside it increases. And one of the things Japan gets from this constitution 
which again feeds into its economic growth, its global growth, is that like other powers before it, it finds that once you've got a written constitution, you start conceding some rights, you can tax more. And it's partly with this greater level of taxation that Japan can build up not only its army, but crucially its navy. And it's with this navy, it's going to smash China and much more important for Japan's reputation, Russia in 1905. The first time for centuries that a so-called non-white people have defeated in battle a white empire, namely Tsarist Russia. So on this question of of modernization and growth and economic development, a really interesting case that I didn't really know much about that you talk about in the book is the case of James Beale, also known as Africanus Horton. And he's sort of considered this sort of founding father figure of African nationalism, and he wrote quite a bit on advocating for sort of self-governance of the various nations of West Africa. I believe he was Nigerian or contemporarily Nigerian by birth. But he also focused a great deal in his writing on economic development and did this specifically within his thinking about constitutions and these sort of governing documents. So how does he see constitution as a tool for generating economic development? I really wanted to include Horton because he was sort of rediscovered in the 1960s. And since then, to a degree, he's been re-forgotten. And I think he's an absolutely remarkable man. And for him, I think codified constitutions and economic change are part of the same package, that these things are necessary if West Africa, which is the region of Africa he's most concerned by, is to become modern, a serious player. He wants to push aside two groupings that he feels are incompatible with modernity. He wants to keep the British out and any other potential colonizers, but he also wants to get rid of the traditional power of many African chiefs who he sees, rightly or wrongly, as stick-in-the-mud figures who haven't got the authority or the drive to build new roads, to educate people, to rethink the role of women, etc., etc. So for Horton, who has a very rosy view of modernity, yes, there must be new written constitutions and there must be a new set of autonomous West African states, some of them governed by emancipated monarchs, some republics, but this has to go hand in hand with a real program of modernization. And Horton always thinks this, 
I mean, in many ways, he's a tragic guy because he's so ultra talented and he just gets rolled over. But, you know, he really knows about these things. One of his last efforts is he makes a lot of money on the London Stock Exchange, which he leaves in his will to improve black education in West Africa, as it is his family just contests the will and it all disappears in lawyers' fees. A familiar story. Unfortunately so. I think having sort of learned a bit about this now, I think this is really potentially one of the sort of great what-ifs if sort of Horton's vision for governance and for modernization in Africa. And I think had he been able to have some traction, I think that probably would have extended to a lot of the rest of the world as well. Would have had a very different world I think we live in now. As you mentioned, one of the topics that he was interested in is the role of women in sort of society and in constitutions. And one of the things that you talk about that's interesting is that not all, but a lot of these early sort of constitutional documents, in some cases explicitly, in some cases sort of maybe implicitly, women are afforded equal status or something approaching it to men, in some cases quite quickly, but generally by the seemingly by the middle of the 19th century, this trend is basically reversed entirely. And uh, you give the particular example that you highlight for this part of the book is Pitcairn Island, which is a super interesting story in and of itself. So what do you think explains this sort of initial inclusion of women in all these early documents, but then also this sort of rapid reversal, right? Because it doesn't seem as though it was, and maybe this isn't right, but it seems as though it wasn't a decisive reaction to extremely rapid social change in the sense that in this sort of time period we're looking at, it doesn't seem as though women's relative place to men doesn't change in absolute terms all that much, or is that not right? And this is more of a sort of reactionary trend. Yeah. I mean, there was some, just some, tiny recognition of women's claims in some early constitutions. I think New Jersey's first state constitution gave the state vote to a minority of affluent women. And then, as you say, you've got this extraordinary example of Pitcairn Island in the South Pacific tiny, tiny place with a tiny, tiny population in 1838, acquiring this world-shattering document the very first time that women were granted the vote at the same age in the same way as men. And that constitution, as it came to be called, survived till the 1920s when it was replaced by another one. But I think the reason why women are so, well, there's many reasons, but one reason why women are being shunted aside by these new constitutional devices is caught up again with the issue of war. If you are going to think, if you are a ruler of a state, that, hey, we want these guys to join up. We need a bigger army or we need more people in the Navy. We want them paying more taxes and so forth. The temptation is to say, look, this is a male prerogative, that it is the masculine duty to defend the state 
and that is written now into a constitution. But look, in return, see what you get. You get the right to vote, which, of course, is not being extended to females in the main. And, of course, in many areas, it's not being extended to people of what is judged the wrong religion or the wrong skin color or whatever. So, again, you can see in these constitutions the link with pressures of war. And what you're going to get in the 19th century in all continents is many more constitutions, lots more emphasis on mass male voting. But in the main, women continuing to be excluded. There are a few exceptions by 1900, for example, women are voting in Australia and New Zealand. But it's still pretty rare. And it's that link with defense, I think, that is helping to explain that. Defense link is interesting, right? Because there's this angle about what are the state's ends and what can the state do to get it? Who is actively serving the state in service of these ends and what do they receive in exchange for doing so? But I want to ask on sort of the more, the level of sort of the individual sort of constitutional thinkers who themselves served in different wars and different capacities and how their service fed into this idea. And one example that you bring up, of course, is Thomas Paine. We know Paine as, you know, he was the great pamphleteer advocating independence from Britain, but he also briefly served as a privateer in the British Navy during the Seven Years' War. So how does this service shape his views? And and more generally, how does actual sort of military service influence these constitution makers? Yeah, I mean, Payne is fascinating. And because, rightly, he's such a prominent American figure, it's sometimes forgotten that, in fact, the bulk of his life is spent in England. He doesn't set out for Philadelphia until he's in the second half of his 30s. And, in fact, the bulk of his life is already gone. And Payne's espousal of, first of all, charters, then constitutions, is almost overdetermined his Maternal grandfather had worked as a town clerk of the place where he was born in Norfolk, England, and so had kept the town's charters, which ordered things like education, charities, and so forth. So right from his childhood, Payne gets to think about written documents and rights and privileges. But then, as you say, He gets caught up in Seven Years' War, alias the French and Indian War, as a privateer. So he sees the way that wars are expanding and becoming more expensive. But even more after peacetime, he becomes a tax collector, collecting what the British call the excise tax, which is the main tax for warfare. And for Payne, this sort of radicalizes him because he's not a pacifist at all. But what he comes to think 
is that all these corrupt European monarchs, that's how he sees them, are waging constant wars against each other, draining more and more money away from people, people who in many cases are not getting anything in return. And this is how he channels into political radicalism. And he reminds us that wars can operate from bottom up as well as top down. It's not just that rulers begin to say, well, we've got to change the organization of the state. People below who have to bear taxes, I mean, Americans know this, who have to bear taxes, who have to do the fighting, are in this climate more likely to say, hey, this is not a good deal. If you're going to treat us like this, we need more rights, no taxation without representation. And Payne carries this journey in his own life very interestingly. But what I also tried to point out in the book was how often leading figures involved in constitution making are fighters, either on land, occasionally on sea. Of course, George Washington, but Bolivar in South America, many of the Japanese constitution makers in the 1880s come from military Japanese clans. And of course, one sees a lot of connections between military service and constitutional change, say, after the Second World War in parts of the Middle East and Africa, becoming independent from Europeans. Very often, the guys who have fought for independence go on to be involved in constitution making. So it's not just a business for quiet, hardworking lawyers. Many constitution makers are. Yeah, and another case of constitution making without lawyers that you talk quite a bit about and I thought was very interesting was that of Catherine in Russia. I think you mentioned that when she wrote her Nakaz or the Grand Instruction, there wasn't a single lawyer in Russia trained as a lawyer in Russia. But one of the things that is interesting about the case of Catherine is that she borrows extensively from outside of Russia. And we see this a lot elsewhere as well. You, you mentioned Bolivar, many of the sort of South American republics of the 19th century, sort of copy elements from the United States and elsewhere, the Cherokee and other native tribes, a similar exercise. Is there an extent to which you think that this heavy borrowing from outside, as opposed to maybe more limited borrowing from outside and a greater emphasis on sort of local norms, traditions, customs, etc. Is there an extent to which that, do you think, weakens the sort of long-run legitimacy of these projects? Russia, in Catherine's case famously, she was never really able to implement any of it, and there was very little sort of movements on that front in any regard until you get to 1905 at the earliest. The South American republics, many, many almost all of them, I think, eventually fall and, and are replaced and go through cycles of turmoil. So it seems as though there's a, an open question of legitimacy um, in these exercises that these examples raise. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Catherine the Great, as she came to be called, she basically lost interest in this extraordinary document, the NACAS, though it is a remarkable and influential document. And she does set up devices to propagate it, a kind of embryonic constitutional convention, which are going to be taken up, obviously, by other powers later on. But I think the issue of borrowing really touches an important point. Everybody borrows. I mean, if you read Madison's account of the Philadelphia debates in 1787, they're very conscious of this. Inevitably, as, yes, they've kicked out the British, but in many ways they're still thinking like the British. And the fact that they have a bicameral Congress and a president That's a kind of American equivalent of the British House of Commons, House of Lords, and the monarch, a sort of tripartite system. Only in the United States, that becomes the lower house, the Senate, the president. So, and there's many other tacit borrowings from British examples, but of course, The delegates at Philadelphia are always saying not just that, well, we're going to do it better, but we must be very careful that this doesn't seem too much like warmed up British stuff. And I think you find that in lots of constitutional episodes. I mean, I suppose the classic example is Norway's great constitution of 1814 which is the second longest surviving constitution in the world, had to be drawn up in six weeks because Norway was about to be invaded by Swedish troops. And so the Norwegian delegates just become ultra plagiarists. They take a bit from one constitution, Holland, bit from France, bit from the United States, bit from political documents produced in Britain. You name it, they borrow it. And then indeed, sometimes they take whole paragraphs as well as particular provisions. But in a sense, by borrowing so widely, they help make their document distinctive because it's a melange. It's like you know a, a quilt made up of different squares of fabric. And that's what many constitutions are. Similarly, in South America, yes, most new South American republics take federalism from the American example. On the other hand, not always. Chile in the 1830s, when it's on its umpteenth constitution, says, to hell with federalism, you know, let's look at what the Brits do instead. So borrowing is constant, but so is the desire to say, okay, we may borrow, but our final text is going to be distinctively ours. Yeah, I like your quilts analogy that you can sort of take this best practices approach 
and in like you said in the case of Norway, something that works particularly well. So one thing I am curious about to hear your take on is that it seems as though, and maybe this is a case of survivorship bias, but a lot of the sort of early constitutions proved quite durable, right? You give the example of Norway, there's the United States, and some of these other early constitutions did last for quite some time and seemingly were quite important in terms of sort of day-to-day governance. But it seems like in more modern times, there was kind of maybe in, in sort of the post-war, post-World War II era, it seems as though in a lot of cases, constitutions matter less in sort of thinking about sort of day-to-day governance or they're sort of laden with what are actually just sort of policy agenda items as opposed to sort of the rules for making the rules and constraints on power, this kind of thing, or they're just ignored. What provisions in them are just ignored? You know, the Soviet constitution, for instance, has many of the same liberties that we, we enjoy in the West that were sort of obviously not upheld in practice. So is this really just a case of survivorship bias here? Is there something missing? There's a table that you include in the book that shows the number of times certain items like free press and free speech and all these kind of things were included in different constitutions. And the numbers for the period you give are quite high. So maybe there actually is a lot of turnover. So what do you think is kind of the story here? Is there a durability or is that just sort of we recognize the the few that have actually lasted? Well, I mean, I think it's been estimated that from the late 18th to the early 20th century, perhaps longer, I can't remember, the average duration of written constitutions is about 18 years. So these things don't, in general, last all that long. And the United States Constitution, the Norwegian Constitution, which has been much amended, are outliers here. That said, of course, there are exceptions. I mean, you think of the great Indian constitution of 1949, 1950. That's under pressure now, arguably from Modi, but it has hung on. It's a formidably important document, heavily based on borrowing, but it's managed to become entrenched. What And I think there's two other things. What has happened since the Second World War is, though perhaps given what we see in Ukraine, this is shifting, that we've moved in many parts of the world from big wars to civil wars which are concentrated more in the Middle East or parts of Africa or whatever. But luckier parts of the globe don't seem to be sucked into these mega wars that the 18th and the 19th and the first half of the 20th century saw. And I think the plurality of civil wars in some areas explains why you're getting a lot, a really unprecedented number of constitutions after the Second World War. It's not just that lots of former colonies are gaining independence. It's also that many of these new regimes don't stick and every replacement regime wants to issue its own written statement. But the other thing I'd want to say is that having lots of constitutions in a country may not absolutely be a sign of failure. 
it may not even be bad. After all, Jefferson thought that constitutions needed regular renewal, particularly in a fast-moving polity like the United States. He did not feel that the work of the men of 1787 should endure forever. That was not his perspective. And what a rapid turnover of constitutions can do, did do in parts of South America, was really boost the franchise level. Again, partly because these new South American states were constantly at war with each other. They had to boost their armies. And therefore, they started thinking not just about enfranchising all white males, but how about the slaves? How about the indigenous people? Let's draw on them as well. And so by 1850, some parts of South America have had an absurd number of constitutions, but they also have, in some ways, a more impressive level of voting democracy than the United States does, than any other part of Europe does. So a plurality of constitutions may mean more than it seems. I think that's an interesting distinction to draw there. And you started to get into what I wanted to ask about for my last question here, ask you to sort of put on the forecaster hat a little bit. So in recent decades, there's sort of been a reversal of the trend to these incredibly, increasingly large destructive wars. So we're now living in this time where fewer people as a share of the global population are dying in armed conflict than ever before, even if over the past maybe 10, 10 or so years that, that has started to unfortunately sort of tick back up a little bit. If this sort of nominally remains the case, and bearing in mind sort of other political, economic, those technological, those kind of factors... What do you think we should expect to see happen in the sort of realm of constitutionalism or constitutional change in the next, say, 100 years? Do we think they'll sort of accelerate in importance and in the rate of change? Will they decline? What do you see happening with the future of the written constitution? Well, they continue to be very popular. And of course, they are constantly being used for new purposes, ecological campaigns, restitution for indigenous peoples, those aims are being introduced into new constitutions in different parts of the world. So these can still be hot and important documents. I think perhaps one of the more insidious changes is that we inhabit a digital world, increasingly not a world of paper and print and mass-produced newspapers and all the sort of things that publicized constitutions. Moreover, we've got a kind of balkanization of political opinion. You know, think the debate on Twitter now. And if people are increasingly going to look at a screen and to opinions that are crossing national and continental boundaries and saying, oh, yeah, I agree with that Twitter feed. 
from Algeria or wherever it is, then what does this do to the idea of a single, perhaps quite old document, it having a sacred place in the nation's thinking? And the way that digital is complicating national boundaries and national jurisdictions is enormous. And the Constitution conventionally perceived is potentially challenged by this in ways I think that have not yet been fully appreciated. I definitely think it will be interesting to see what happens. Maybe that'll be the next book, right? Uh, so thank you, Linda, for joining us on the show today. It's been great to have you, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a great pleasure. Um, thanks for reading the book so thoroughly. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.